Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. So we've laid this foundation for holiness for weeks now. The idea that God's holy, our response to that, what should it look like? And so today I want to start looking at truly the life application, the commands we see in Scripture for living out a holy lifestyle, because we've set this foundation for holiness. We've come to the conclusion based on the Scripture that we've read that God is holy, period. That Jesus is holy, period. Holy Spirit is holy, Period. No ifs, no ands, no buts. That's the truth. That is the foundation. So based on that foundation dictates our response or should dictate our response. However, sometimes we know that we do not live a holy lifestyle, a set-apart lifestyle. And so today's message and the messages for the next few weeks are going to be life application type of messages where we look at Hebrews chapter 12 and 13, and flesh out how to walk this out day in and day out in our lives. Because what we discover is that walking a holy lifestyle, a set-apart lifestyle, is easy when life is going well. And we have no struggles, we have no issues. The challenge comes from our thought perception when life is difficult and we're walking through problems in life. Then the whole idea of holiness, purification, is a separate topic and a little bit more difficult to walk out. So before we jump into Hebrews chapter 12, I want to talk to you about a very big church word. Now this is a church word that I brought up with the youth on Wednesday night that I feel like really ties in with our message today. So I'm going to camp out here for just a few minutes. But this is a big church word, quite honestly. Church and church activities is probably... The only place you'll ever hear this word. Maybe in some books that you're reading, the books are pointing you toward Jesus in relationship to Him. But this is one of these big church words that quite honestly is a little bit hard to understand and wrap our mind around. And that is the word sanctification. And I can see on the expressions on a few faces, yes, sanctification is one of those words, I don't know if I quite grasp it. Is it even biblical? Well, the answer to that part of the question is yes, it's absolutely biblical. Now, here's where you come into the rub. Depending on the denomination that you grew up in, or the books that you read, or the teachings that you sit under and follow, depends on your view of sanctification. So we can easily defend that sanctification is a biblical process. I'm going to do that for you in just a moment. But you will find as you study the word sanctification and you look at different authors writing about sanctification, you may come across that some people have different points of view. One of the points of view of sanctification is that it's 100% up to you to live this out. It is a process. It's not something that happens in, at a moment in time. It's not a snap of a finger. You have to live this out every single moment of every single day. The other side of that is that sanctification truly is a process that God ordained, God puts in place, and it's up to Him to make it happen. What I want to camp out for just a few minutes today is the middle ground. 
And I don't know if this is exactly right, but I want to look at it as a 50-50% proposition here. That 50% of it's my responsibility, 50% of it's God's responsibility. And to be honest with you, as I look and I study Scripture, I really think it's more like an 80-20 God responsibility. Maybe even a 90-10. Maybe even 99% to 1% God responsibility to the little bit that I do. But I want to look at it just from a 50-50 perspective to kind of help grasp our mind around it. So where do we start with with this sanctification idea? So the word sanctification means to be sanctified. Now you look that word up in Scripture, you're going to see it mentioned numerous times, the idea of being sanctified. I want to think you, uh, walk you through a different couple of ideas about it. Sanctification also means to be set apart. Another way to describe sanctification is the process of being made holy. Ah, now there's a word that we've talked about a lot here lately. I kind of grasp that. I kind of understand that. I can wrap my mind around this whole holiness ideal because we've spent so many weeks talking about it now. The holiness of God. So what was our foundational verse? Do you remember that? You've probably committed it to memory just from the simple fact that you've heard me say it every single week for the last seven or eight weeks. Leviticus 19.2 Be holy because... Because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be holy because I, Yehovah your Elohim, am holy. That is a command by God. Now I want to remind you that God does not give us commands in Scripture simply for the sake of giving us a command. He doesn't give us a command in Scripture that is unattainable, that we cannot grasp, that we cannot walk into. That is not achievable. Being holy is achievable. But if my perception of holiness is a checklist that I have to do, then I'll never reach holiness. So Leviticus 19.2 says, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, Jehovah your Elohim, am holy. Now, if you happen to be turned there, I want you to turn one page over to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 20. If you don't want to turn there, don't worry about it because I'm going to jump in. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. But I want to read chapter 20, one chapter later. Verse 7 and 8. This is a continuation of some of the commands that God gave us. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 7 says, Consecrate yourselves and be holy. So here we see again a command by God. Set yourself apart, consecrate, set yourself toward me, and be holy. A command by God to you and to me. Not a command that was written 3,000 years ago, that died 3,000 years ago. A command that was written, spoken 3,000 years ago, that is still applicable and livable for us today. Consecrate yourselves in action. Be holy in action, both on our part. He continues, Because I am, the, I am Jehovah your Elohim. I am the Lord your God. Sounds like a repeat of 19.2, doesn't it? Consecrate yourselves, be holy, because I am Jehovah your Elohim. I am the Lord your God. Then he says in verse 8, Keep my decrees and follow them. Keep my statutes and follow them. Keep my laws and follow them. Again, this is an actionable statement, an actionable command that God has given to you and to me to live out. So where's God's role in this? We haven't quite got there yet. His command... Reiterated from chapter 19, be holy because I'm holy. Then he says, study my law, study my statutes, study my rules, study what I've written, what I've told you, and go live it out. He continues in verse 8. I am the Lord who makes you holy. 
Now, at this point, hopefully, if we let that sink in and grasp, some of that weight that you may be carrying can suddenly fall off your shoulders. Because if you went from this holiness idea, this actionable calling toward holiness, and your mindset was, it's all up to me, here God confirms it is not all up to you. He says, you have a responsibility to be holy. You have a responsibility to consecrate yourself. You have a responsibility to study my laws and my actions, my my regulations, my rules, and to live them out. And then he says, I am the Lord who makes you holy. We actually studied this with our teenagers because this is one of the names of God that we studied on Wednesday night. It is the name of God, Yehovah, the Lord, who makes you holy, who sanctifies you. It's actually translation from one word. Teenagers, anybody remember? Mekodeshim. Me, Mekodeshim. Mekodeshim. I had I said it right earlier today. Now I'm stuttering over it. Mikadeshkim. So we see this original language. It, it, that entire sentence says, "I am Jehovah Mikadeshkim." Mikadeshkim translates as the one who makes you holy, the one who sets you apart, the one who sanctifies you. That is the name. That is an attribute of God Himself. It is actionable by Him. It's part of His DNA. His DNA makes us holy, sets us apart. It's not all up to you. It's not all on you. Mikadeshkim, M-E-K-O-D-D-I-S-H-K-E-M. Mikadeshkim. Tongue twister, yes. But the significance and the weight of that is incredible. That's his name. He says, my name, I am Yehovah, the Lord your God, I am Yehovah Mikadeshkim. I am the God who sanctifies you. So this sanctification process, this sanctification anointing that we have is partially our responsibility, following the rules, following the laws, listening, obeying, pursuing holiness. That's our job. But the other side of it is God is making us holy. He makes us holy. Another piece of scripture that I want to look at just for a moment is 2 Corinthians chapter 16. In 2 Corinthians, Paul's writing to the church of Corinth, and he's given them this idea of sanctification, of holiness as well. So I want to look at this, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, just to kind of grasp sanctification. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 says this, For we are the temple of the living God. Let's stop there for just a moment. We are the temple of the living God. If you've ever been to church before, most likely you've heard someone in a Sunday school class, a teacher, a sermon about you being the temple of the holy God. Now you see, before Christ came, they had temple. They had a temple. They had a synagogue. They had a separated place where God came and dwelt. But when Jesus came, and then Jesus died, and went into the ground, and came back to life, and ascended to the, holy, uh, ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and then 40 days later at Pentecost, Christ gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. And from that moment on, we have become the temple of the Most High God. The Holy Spirit of God dwells within us. He's no longer in a temple in a building somewhere, we have become the temple. And Paul is reminding us of that truth, that we are the temple of the Most High God. Now, you've heard me say this before. I love our facility. I love these buildings. But these buildings are not the temple. These buildings are buildings. Now, there's something... There's something special about this place because this is where we gather. And this is where we honor God. And this is where we live life together partially. 
But this is not the temple. You are the temple. So the temple of the living God walks everywhere that you walk, travels everywhere that you travel. There is nowhere that you go where the temple of the living God is not represented because you are the temple of the living God if you have ever said yes to Jesus. When you say yes to Jesus, you're given the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. He comes to dwell within you and becomes a part of who you are. So at that point, you become the temple of the living God. Think about that from a holiness perspective. He says in verse 16, For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, and he quotes these four truths, these four promises from the Old Testament. I will live with them and walk among them and will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore come out and separate from them and be separate, says the Lord, says Adonai. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be your father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Says Adonai Zavoat, the master of all, the God of angel armies. This is the voice of the King of kings and the Lord of lords saying, I will not separate myself from from them, I will be a part of them. Since we have these promises. So Paul reminds the church of Corinth, these are truths found in the Old Testament, found before Christ, truths of what God has said, pointing us toward Him, pointing toward His promises for us. And he says, here, since you have these promises, since you remember these promises, since these are a part of who we are, dear friends, let us purify ourselves. You see, there's the action. We are called by Paul right here, by God Himself. Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit. Now let that sink in for just a moment as well. It's actionable on our part. I am called by God to purify myself. Now wait a second. I thought we were asking God for clean hands and a pure heart. Isn't that what David did? David cried out and said, give me clean hands. Give me a pure heart. I want a resolute spirit. I want my spirit and your spirit to be linked together. That was a prayer of asking God to purify us. Yes, but again, sanctification is a two-way process. We ask God to purify us, but then I have to take action and purify myself. Paul said, purify yourselves of anything that contaminates the body and the spirit. Let's think about the body aspect for just a moment. Anything that contaminates my physical body. Anything that contaminates my physical body. So, Kevin mentioned it just a little while ago about the false gods that we have through technology. Those are things that contaminate my body. Okay? The things that I eat, the places that I go, the things that I wear, anything that I do uh, abusing my body. These, our bodies are the temple of the Most High God. And so he says, cleanse yourself, purify yourself, remove yourself from anything that contaminates your body, both physically and emotionally. You see, the body is, the, is, is our dwelling of our spirit. We're going to talk about the spirit in just a second. But physical and emotional is, is what happens to us internally. And so I do things to my physical body that, affect, that affects my emotional state. And I do things in the emotional realm that affect my physical appearance and physical health. So those two things, anything in your life that contaminates you physically or emotionally, we are commanded, commanded, not suggested, commanded to remove it, to purify it. God, I ask for clean hands and a pure heart and a resolute spirit. And so when I ask that, God cleanses me. But when I ask that, part of the way that He cleanses me is He'll plant that seed Plant that thought in my mind that says, this is where you're not in agreement with me. This is something in your heart and in your life that is not given uh, holiness, that is not 
given intentionality. It is not given toward me. And so at that point, I have a choice. Either I remove it, I walk away from it, or I walk into it and continue, continue to live in a life of sin. So the command is sanctification. Purify. Ask God to purify me, but also purify myself. Look at myself in the spiritual mirror every single moment of every single day. So just as we wake up in the mornings and we look in the physical mirror to brush our teeth, to comb our hair, to put on the makeup, whatever it is we do in the physical mirror to look at, we need to do the same thing in the spiritual mirror. I have to observe the spiritual mirror, ask God, God, what is in me spiritually? emotionally, physically. What is it that's contaminating me, that's keeping me from walking in holiness and purity to you? Because I want that to be gone. Then he reveals it to us. Now it's up to me to remove it and to walk away from it. He says, purify yourselves and remove whatever contaminates your body and your spirit. So we ask the same thing in the spiritual realm. God, what is it spiritually? What are the idols in my life? What a great prayer to ask God, God, would you reveal to me the idols in my life? God, would you reveal to me what is in the center of my circle of life? Because if it's not you, I acknowledge that that's idolatry. Anything, anything that's in the center of the circle of your life, you can say that is the most important thing in your life. However you want to word that. Anything that's in the center of your circle of life that is not God the Trinity is idolatry. Period. God may be in the center of God may be in the circle of your life, but if He's not the center of it, then whatever that is is idolatry. Cleanse yourself. Purify yourself, the words of, of Paul. Sanctification. To be set apart. To be made holy. Asking God. God does that. Be holy. I'm going to be the God that makes you holy. It's a twofold process. And then through that, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Perfecting holiness. You see? Perfecting it is practicing it. Practice makes perfect. You know, these, these slogans that we use, but it's this chasing after holiness. It's a choice that I make. I choose in this moment to pursue more of God and ask for more cleansing, ask for more purification. But when He reveals it to me, I have actionable steps to do something about it. That's that sanctification process. That's that holiness process. God says, I am Jehovah I am the God who makes you holy. Your responsibility is to follow my commands. Follow after me. Chase after me. Desire more of me. Pursue me. But when you do that, I will make you holy. It's a give and a take. Are we living up to our responsibility? Are we living up to our calling through that? Because He is going to live up to who He is. If God does not, holy, if God does not purify us, if God does not make us holy, then He's a liar. And His very name is null and void. That is part of His DNA. It can't be removed. It's a part of who He is. Our responsibility is to pursue holiness. So from that perspective, then we jump into Hebrews chapter 12. Now if you remember last week, I told you that Hebrews chapter 12 starts with an absolutely phenomenal, one of the greatest words in the entire Bible. And that's the word, therefore. Therefore, anytime I come across the word in Scripture, therefore, requires me to know what preceded the word, therefore. So what precedes the word, therefore, in Hebrews chapter 12? Well, that's Hebrews chapter 1 through 11. 
And that's why I gave you the homework if you were here last week. The homework was to read Hebrews chapter 1 through 11 so that you have this idea of where we're camping at today and what precedes the word, therefore. Did you do it? There's no condemnation here. Did you do it? No. Okay, yeah, kind of mixed reviews here. Okay. All right. Now remember, I'm going to pretend like I'm talking with teenagers. Okay. You get out of it what you put into it. All right. That's a lesson for life. Okay. Scripture as well. You get out of it what you put into it. So Hebrews chapter 1 through 12. Let me... Or actually, 11. Let me sum up that for you, okay? In, in case you didn't have a chance to read that, Hebrews 1 through 10, very simply, this is very, very simplistic, okay? A lot more to this. But for simplicity's sake, Hebrews 1 through 10 is the authenticity of Jesus. It's the foundation of Jesus. It's the truth of Jesus. Okay? Therefore, because of who Jesus is, therefore. Then we jump to uh, chapter 11. So the first 10 chapters are about the truth of Jesus, the foundation of Jesus. Chapter 11 is what we call the faith chapter. Because of faith, this person did this. Because of faith, this person did this. Because of faith, this person did this. On and on and on and on. So you have an entire chapter about heroes of the faith that we see in the Old Testament. Truth that every single person reading this as a Hebrew, as an Israeli, as an Israelite would have already known. Okay? For us, this is part of the foundation of knowing the New Testament and the Old Testament. We do not have a New Testament solo Christianity. Christianity is equal Old Testament and New Testament. I cannot understand the majority of Hebrews if I don't understand the basics of the Old Testament. You're going to struggle with it. Two perspectives. One, I can't figure it out logically because it's written exponentially. I mean experientially. So I have, to, I have to understand it from that perspective. And then if I don't know the basic stories of the Old Testament, these people are great names, but I don't know anything about them. So Hebrews 1 through 10 is about the foundation of Jesus. Hebrews 11 is about a whole list of spiritual mothers and fathers who rocked the world for the cause of Christ in the name of God, before because they were Old Testament. And then there's a list of more people that says, I don't even have time to talk about them. Therefore. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we, have, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. So the great cloud of witnesses that he's talking about right here, easily we look at chapters 1 through 11 and say, well, that's the ones that he missed in 11, all the faith people, and then you get the foundation of Jesus. But I want you to grasp that it's even deeper than that, it's bigger than that. Anyone who has impacted your life for the cause of Christ that is no longer on this earth is part of these great cloud of witnesses that are in heaven celebrating around the throne room, worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords in this very moment. These may be saints that have gone, these are saints that have gone before us. It may be mothers and fathers and grandparents, great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents. It may be aunts and uncles and next-door neighbors. It may be pastors of old, Sunday school teachers that you had as a child. These are people who have pointed you to the truth of who Jesus is. And because of them pointing you to the truth of Jesus is, being faithful in their walk, being faithful in their talk, being faithful in pursuing holiness, they are part of this great cloud of witnesses. Now, at some point in the future, every single one of us, when we breathe our last breath here on earth and breathe our first breath in heaven, whatever that looks like, 
are going to be remembered on this earth. It may not be remembered to the masses, but we will be remembered by those that we made impact with. And so that's the question to begin with. Are we, each of us, going to be remembered as this great cloud of witnesses who pointed the world to Jesus? See, we live in a culture, we live in a world that is anti-Christian, that is anti-God in so many ways. And in this world today, our focus is not on God. Our focus is on culture. Our focus is on uh, acquisition of wealth. Our focus is on status, social. Our focus is on fun. Our focus is on so many things other than God. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but I want you to think for a moment. What, what are you willing to do for this next generation? What are you willing to do for the children that are coming and the children's children and the children's 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 children? We have the opportunity right here, right now to draw a line in the sand and say no more. We can take that great line from the president and say the buck stops here. Meaning, no more. I'm not putting up with this anymore. The evil one's not going to have control of our culture anymore. The evil one's not going to have control of, of our godly direction anymore. The evil one's not going to influence us the way that he has in the past. Because right now, right here, we're going to draw a line in the sand. And I'm going to look at Jesus and the life that he lived. And I'm going to look at these faith fathers and mothers from generations old in the Scripture. But not only there, I'm going to look at the faithful ones, these cloud of witnesses that's passed on in the last 10 years who were firm for their faith, and the ones that have passed on in the last 20 and 30 years who were firm for their faith, and the ones that have passed on 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 300 years ago, who were firm for their faith, the ones that stood their ground and said, no more. We're going to set the next generation free. We're going to stand for what's right. We're going to draw a line in the sand and say, we're not doing this anymore. Generational curses be gone in the name of Jesus. Family dynamic curses are going to be gone in the name of Jesus. I, will, I refuse to let my family, my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren go through the sins of the fathers being passed down second, third, and fourth generation because we're stopping it right now. I'm taking responsibility. Are we willing to say that? I want to take responsibility. I'm going to walk in holiness and purity. I'm going to change the generation. I'm going to live such an example that people look at me and say, that's what it means to be a Christ follower. That's a choice that we each have to make. Paul wasn't writing this, I'm sorry, the author of Hebrews, we don't know who that was, was not writing this to tell us, look at these few people that were mentioned in chapter 11, and that's the extent of the cloud of witnesses. We are part of those cloud of witnesses we're called to be. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witness, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Throw it off. Get rid of everything. And so we have to look. You have to look. I have to look in this spiritual mirror that affects my body, both physically and emotionally, and my spirit. And I have to throw off not gently lay it down and fold it up or put it in the drawer nice and neat where I can pull it out later. I want to throw it up, throw it down, wad it up, step on it, and get rid of it. Anything, anything, anything that easily entangles, that causes us to sin, that causes us in the body, emotionally or physically, or in the spiritual realm. 
throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. See, we're not worried about the big sins. We want to stay away from the big sins. It's the little sins that easily entangle. Now, we know that there's no difference between big sins and, and little sins. According to Scripture, a sin's a sin, period. But for us, the way that we live our lives, well, the big sins, we're not even going to go over there. Adultery, oh, ain't no way. All right, stealing from the bank ain't no way. Robbing the convenience store ain't no way. Over here, white lies, oh, they're okay. Gossip, they're okay. Looking down on people that aren't like me, that's okay. No, none of it's okay. Anything that separates us from being holy from God is not okay. And because of this great cloud of witnesses, people that have stood for their faith, that stood up boldly, because of that, let us throw off. Because of the examples that they had. Do you know of anybody in your life that has lived such an example of throwing off sin, throwing off entanglement, throwing off things that separate them from God, that they're such a godly example to say, I want to imitate them, I want to be like that. I want to pursue holiness because I see holiness in them. I want to pursue righteousness because I see righteousness in them. I want to pursue more of God because I see them pursuing more of God. That's the lifestyle that we're called to live. And it's not just so other people can see it because I, I want more of God for me. But if we're living that type of example, that type of lifestyle, it's contagious and other people see it. Then he says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. It's a race. Life is a race. And to run it with perseverance. And that's really where most of us struggle. Because we view life, I've used life so many times as this sprint. And I can sprint for a little ways and I'm okay. Run as fast as I can, hard as I can, and boom, when I'm done, I'm done. But then it's like hitting that brick wall and falling flat on my face. That's not perseverance. I gave this example earlier. This idea of perseverance is to persevere to see what's coming ahead. So if I'm running this race and I'm asking God for more and I'm asking for clarity, I'm asking for guidance, I'm asking for holiness and purity, I want to have His eyes, I want to see what He sees, I want to hear what He hears, I'm going to see and I'm going to hear the obstacles that are coming toward me because I'm running this race. And I can see them in advance and I can either jump over them or crawl under them or walk around them or run around them or something of that nature. It's when I feel like I'm blindsided that I hit the wall, that I hit the ground. But perseverance is more than just having stamina. It's having these eyes of Christ that God show me what's coming in my direction that I need to stay away from. There's a fence over there. Stay away from it. There's a hurdle over there. Stay away from it. There's a hole in the road. Jump over it. We have to have these eyes that we're asking God for. And that's what he's talking about here. Running this race with perseverance, not giving up. Well, not giving up is easy when life's going well and the bills are being paid and I have no issues in the house and the roof's on good and I got food and I got clothes and I got my job. It's when everything else starts happening that perseverance seems to crash. It's when everything else that starts happening it was my faith seems to leave and my trust seems to leave. And I told you guys a few weeks ago, for me, one of my biggest struggles is trust for the future. I have trust in the immediate. I have trust in next week. I have trust next month. But knowing beyond that, man, I really struggle with that. That trust of God, that faithfulness of God, that persevering of God, knowing that He's got it taken care of because He's never let me down, but still not wanting to trust completely, not wanting to trust 
ultimately, not, not being assured that it's all in his hands. I know it here. I've read it. I've memorized it. But something's lacking here, that long-term trust of God. And I'm working through that. I'm asking God about it constantly. I've, I've admitted his sin to him. I said, God, I'm struggling with this. How do I trust you for the things that I don't know what's happening yet? How do I trust you for these, these thoughts that you've given me, these dreams, these visions, these, these ideas that you've placed in my heart, my life? I don't know what to do with them. I, I, I sense this, but I don't see how this is going to happen. And so I really, try, I really struggle with that. And I know that I'm not alone. I know that we all struggle with different aspects of that. But life is this race. This perseverance is persevering in the good times and the bad times. But here's the thing about perseverance and walking this race. We're not called to run this race alone. It's not a race if you're running by yourself. Is it? Who are you racing against? Racing against time, racing against the weather, racing against the environment. I don't know. What are you racing against? Life is a race, and we're all on that race together. And so that's why it's so important to live life together. Life is not, Christianity is not a Sunday morning service. Christianity is life on life. It's walking hand in hand. It's holding each other up. When I fall, you are there to help pick me up. And when you fall, I'm there to help pick you up. But when we segregate ourselves from life on life, when we segregate ourselves from the rest of God's people, and it's just a Sunday morning routine, we get lost in the mix. And that's why running that race is so difficult. You're running a race solo, it's not going to be fun. It's exhausting. I have nobody to encourage me when I'm starting to slow down that, hey, I can keep going. There's nobody to pick me up when I fall down. There's nobody to hand me a glass of water as, as, I'm, as I'm needing something to drink. That's so, such a struggle. Verse 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You see, that's where our eyes have to be focused. And acknowledging that that is not where our eyes is, is probably the first step in, in walking into holiness, holiness and purification and wholeness. We have to acknowledge that our eyes are not always on Jesus. And when we acknowledge that our eyes are not on Jesus, we have a choice to make. My eyes are not on Him. Either I choose to look at Him or I choose not to. So in that moment, when we recognize that our eyes are not on Jesus, Paul says, take every thought captive. Okay? Again, we're not going to give, a, give it a command that we can't do. So if I take a thought captive that's chasing this direction that is not godly and I reach out and I grab it, then I turn in the moment and start focusing on God. That's what it means to keep our eyes on Him. Keep our eyes on Jesus. Why? Because He's both the author and the perfecter. He's the author of our faith. He wrote our faith. Our faith without Jesus is not our faith in God. He's the author of it. If it was not for Jesus, none of Christianity would exist. He's the author. He wrote it. He was in heaven. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, was Jesus. Everything that was created was created through Him, with Him, in Him. Jesus is that firm foundation. Talked about the holiness. God is holy, period. Jesus is holy, period. The Holy Spirit is holy, period. That's that firm foundation. So what our requirement is is to keep our eyes on Him. How do I do that? How do I do that when I'm on the ground because I just tripped and fell again? It's picking myself up and looking. I might still be on the ground, but I can keep my eyes on him. You can hit the ground and hold your head up and keep your eyes on him until you're able to stand back up. 
And I think that's really part of our struggle. Because when we hit the ground, it hurts. Hurt my elbow, hurt my knee, hurt my head. That's when life happens, so to speak, and we're just on the ground hurting. And he says, look at me. Keep your eyes focused on me. Keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on the goal. Because if you keep your eyes there, that motivates us. If I look down at the ground and I realize where I'm at, I don't want to stand up. I give in. I might as well just keep my face in the mud. But when I keep my eyes up, when I look up and I can focus on Him, something starts to stir. It may hurt, but I'm going to persevere because I see the evidence of my faith in Jesus. He's the author and the perfecter. Let that sink in for a moment. Again, sanctification. Half on God, half on you. If Jesus is the perfecter of our faith, if Jesus is the perfecter of your faith, my faith, if Jesus is the perfecter, that means I'm not. <laughs> I'm not the perfecter. Does that take any weight off whatsoever? Because in some ways, I'm a perfectionist. You wouldn't know that about me, but there are some things, and, and, and I'm not in the perfectionist from, that, from, from the perspective of everything's got to be absolutely perfect, but I do believe everything you do, you do to the honor and glory of God. So I'm going to do the very best that I can. So I'm perfect from, from perfectionist from that perspective. But I'm not the perfecter of my faith. Jesus is. He's the author of my faith, and He's the one that perfects it. It's not on me. All I have to do is walk in holiness and walk in purity and desire more and chase after more. I still have responsibility. But if it's all on me, then it becomes a checklist. And as long as I do more good than I do bad, more right than I do wrong, more wise choices than I do unwise choices, then I'm, I'm kind of holy. I'm chasing after holiness. But then it's all on us. And we're going to fail every single time. If holiness was 100% on us, we would never achieve it. It would be Inachievable. It is inachievable when it's done with us. But Christ, as the author of our faith and the perfecter of our faith, and then we've got that middle ground. He's the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. And our pursuit is to run that race right down the middle. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. He did that for you and for me. It was not joyful for him. It was painful for him. But the joy was found in the light of each and every one of us. <clears throat> in our eyes. You know, I've wondered so many times what Jesus actually saw in his spirit as he was dying on the cross. Did he see the eyes of every single person from the beginning of time to the end of time? If he didn't, then what would have been joyful about it? Did he see our eyes? Did he see our heart? Did he see our spirit? Did he see our soul? I don't know. 
but because of the joy that we get to celebrate in heaven with him, that is the joy that was set before him. And therefore he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We've talked about that over several weeks. Verse 3, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And that's our call. To not grow weary, to not lose heart. And that's where it gets hard. Because when I grow tired, I lose heart. When I'm weak, I lose heart. When I don't have strength, I want to give up. When I'm out of breath, I don't feel like taking another step in a race where I'm out of breath. And that's the life that we live. But because of what he did for us, we're reminded, don't lose heart. Don't give up. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. You can take one more step, just one more. All right, you took that one step, take one more. Make one more wise choice. Pray about it. God, what is it that you want me to do in this moment? Ah, another step. God, this stinks right now. I'm struggling with it. What do I do? I need your help. There's one more step. God, I acknowledge I don't have this all figured out. I, I, I don't know what to do. There's one more step. Acknowledging our weakness. Acknowledging our brokenness before Him. Acknowledging that we don't have it all together. Not pretending that we all have it together. Because God knows our hearts. We can put on a front for everybody else around us, but God knows the heart. He knows we don't have it all together. He knows we're broken. He knows we're messed up. He knows some of us are trying. But don't try in your own strength because you don't have the strength. You can't perfect it. Only Christ can. I want to read our verse of the week. And that's where we're going to stop at. I want to read that in context. So we're talking about how to live this actual out every single day of our lives. And there's so much of the scripture that talks about living this out, about making wise choices and what that actually looks like. And so, you know, what, what, do, I, what do I do at the end of the day today? How do I walk this out tomorrow? What does that look like? It's asking wise choices. It's asking God questions. It's pointing our questions toward Him. When we don't know what to do, say, God, what do you want me to do? God, where do you want me to go? God, what kind of job do you want me to have? God, what do you want me to study in school? God, what kind of uh, relationship do you want me to be in? God, where do you want me to move? God, what kind of vehicle do you want me to buy? God, how do I take care of what you've given me? God, what, what, what do I do with the finances that you've given me? God, how can I help serve here? God, how can I go there? God, ask God what He wants you to do and let Him dictate that to you. Well, I haven't heard from Him. I don't know what to do. Okay, just keep asking until you hear. Because he speaks so often, the Bible tells us in a still small voice, and if I'm not used to hearing that still small voice, if I'm not used to hearing him speaking and knowing that that's his voice, I won't recognize that it's him, even though he's talking. So Paul tells the church in Corinth, verse 31 of chapter 10, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That sums up everything, doesn't it? Well, that's, that's easy. We memorize that verse. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So what does that look like in my work? What does that look like in, in my home life? What does that look like when I'm raising grandchildren? What does that look like when I'm taking care, of, taking care of parents? What does that look like making ends meet? What does that look like in a broken home where our lives are falling apart? 
My husband doesn't love me. My wife doesn't love me. My kids doesn't love me. What does that look like on the mountaintops and in the valleys? It's everything that you do, you do to the glory of God. I don't know what the glory of God looks like in this moment. Then make the best choice that you can, pursuing holiness, pursuing God, asking Jesus, what would you do in this situation? God, what, do you, what would you suggest that I do here? It's going to Him before we go to everybody else with our problems. Now, God uses other people to help give us guidance, but let that not be the first people that we go to. Our first people we go to, first person we go to, should be to the Father who loves us and cares for us. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble. That's my responsibility. If I do things in my life that are causing you to stumble, then that's on me. It has nothing to do because I'm on stage. It's because I'm a Christ follower, period. It has nothing to do with my age. I'm older than some of you and younger than some of you. It has nothing to do with age. It's because I'm a Christ follower. This same truth is truth for you as a Christ follower. Your responsibility is not to cause anyone to stumble because of the lifestyle that you live. Through action, through words, through conversation, through dress, through social media, whatever it is in your heart and your life. Do not cause anyone to stumble, no matter who they are, whether they're Jews or Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so they may be saved. And then he concludes that statement by saying, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That has to be one, probably the boldest statement in the entire scripture, with the exception of words Jesus himself spoke. For Paul to say, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. For us today, what that means is, you want to know what it means to be a Christ follower? Watch the way I live my life and imitate me as I imitate Christ. Sign me up for that, right? Who wants to sign up for that one? We're going to have a table right up here. It's over. Okay, this is the sign-up table right up front. Sign me up. I'm going to be the one that cries out and says, you want to know what it means to be a Christ follower? You imitate me as I imitate Christ. Oh. Now, Paul did not give us these words to say this is what we should be crying out from the rooftops, but this is the example that he lived. And things are not in Scripture by accident. They're there on purpose. And that is a calling that should be the heartbeat of us as Christ followers. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, the boldness, the audacity. But here you've got someone who said, enough's enough. I'm drawing a line in the sand, and I'm saying no more. Now, Paul, you can see in Scripture, admitted that he didn't get it right all the time. Paul had issues. Paul didn't get along with everybody. But Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And that's the calling for us as Christ followers because believe it or not, whether or not you say this, this is the example that we're setting. Parents in this room, if you're a parent or a grandparent or an aunt and uncle or an authority figure or a young adult or a teenager or a child, which covers everybody in this room, people watch you, period. They do. And whether you say it or not verbally, if you've ever acted like a Christian, wore a Christian t-shirt, wore a, a cross necklace, said that you're a Christian, people look at that. And what you do 
is telling them what a Christian does. So let's carry the weight of that for a moment. That's pretty, pretty hefty stuff. But that isn't that what Paul said. Follow me as I follow the example of Christ. And that's the calling. Now, when we make a mistake, what do we do? We own it. That's what we should do. I messed up. I'm sorry. I'm getting back up. I'm keeping my eyes focused on Christ. And I'm going to start taking another step forward. And I'm going to try to get it right from here on out. And if I mess up again, then I'll confess that and get up and move it again. But until that point, I'm chasing after God, setting an example for holiness and purity, setting an example for the next generation. The things that we do here today set a foundation for five years, ten years, and ultimately the rest of the generations that, that may gather here. Or we can walk in such unfaithfulness that the doors close in a week. And then we ask the questions, did the community even know that we were here? See, we're called to be world changers. We're called to set a world-changing example in our hearts and our lives. And that's what the author of Hebrews is telling us. Because of the witnesses, because of the example of Christ and in the Old Testament and the New Testament and all the saints that have gone before us between, between the, the, the time of Christ until this very moment, because of their examples, we follow a pursuit of holiness. And when it's hard, we acknowledge it's hard, but we don't stop running. We don't stop chasing. We persevere. Now, that doesn't leave us with great joy this morning, does it? It's, it's hard. Guys, living out the Christ-like life has never been told it was some easy thing. It is difficult. It's difficult. But it's not a race that you're supposed to run alone. So if you're running that race alone, if it's just you and your immediate family and you're not running the race with life on life, with biblical community, with people that are going to encourage you and equip you and point you to Jesus, I'm going to encourage you right now to do that. Get involved with Christ followers who are pursuing Jesus. Ask for more. Desire more. Because their job is is the same as your job to help the fallen stand up and to run the race with our head pointed toward Christ. Is that achievable? Yes. Is that doable? Yes. Let's run the race. Let's chase after God for more. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Find out more about First Baptist Church Gulf Breeze at fbcgulfbreeze.org.